Good morning. Welcome home, family. So glad to see everyone here uh, worshiping with us this morning. Um, we are continuing our series going through the book of Exodus. Uh, we'll be in Exodus chapter 2 here in a bit. Uh, just so an, a Continuing, I always I say this uh, probably too often, but we have these scriptural journals out in the lobby that if you are a note taker, uh, you can grab one of these and take notes. If you're not a note taker, you can still use it throughout the week as you read the scripture before we are going to uh, listen about it, and you can take your own notes and ask questions of the scripture. So it's a useful tool. Um, so if you're interested at all, you can pick them up right there out in the lobby on a table. Um, Five dollars it covers the cost. We we incur uh, getting them, but if you don't have $5, you can just take one if you're going to use it. I don't care. So there you go. If you're going to use it, use it. So, uh, But before we dive into Exodus chapter 2, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for today. When we can gather as your people, when we can praise your holy name, when we can open up your word and know you and see you and uh, see how you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, I pray for this time as we sit under your word that you can show us who you are. You can show us how you've moved through history, how you have raised up, risen up saviors, how you have done what you've promised you're going to do. Lord, I just pray for this time that your word, which is alive and active, can be at work in our hearts and minds. Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. There's something about birth stories. Something so common. I mean, we all have one, right? We are all born. And we probably all know several of them. If you have kids or if you have nieces or nephews or friends who have kids, everyone has a birth story. You know a birth story. You hear about those birth stories. But there's something about them. They hold so much promise. As a parent is holding a newborn child, there is so much potential and promise as they look upon this newborn baby, as they think and pray about what God has in store for them, there is something about that because it's almost like the possibilities are endless. And we trust how God is going to be working in this child's life. There's just something about them. And the Bible is full of them. When you read the Bible, when you read the Old Testament in particular, you see birth story after birth story. They might be those small ones like so-and-so, you know, fathered so-and-so that are really fast in genealogies. You know those parts of the Bible we skip over when we're reading it? They might be that small. Or they might be big, long narratives like in the story of Isaac or the birth of Esau and Jacob or the battle of the babies with, with Leah and Rachel or even the, you know, the birth of, of Samson who an angel appeared and told his mom that he was going to have a child who was going to save Israel. Or even Samuel's is this, this kind of last judge of Israel. Again and again we see these birth narratives through the Scripture until we come to that ultimate birth narrative narrative of Jesus being born for us. And all of these narratives that we read in the Bible are filled with hope. They're filled with expectation. And when we come to Exodus chapter 2, we see another birth narrative. One that's supposed to fill uh, the people of God with hope and expectation of how he's going to use this person for his good. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to be reading the first 
to uh, the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter 2. And it should be on the screen behind me if you do not have your Bibles. So just a recap that we taught say last week before we get into chapter 2. Chapter 1 kind of set the stage of how the people of Israel had were in Egypt and how there's oppression now going on. Pharaoh is decreeing that these boys, uh, all the boys born to the Hebrew people, be, be killed. Uh, and, and chapter 1 ends with this kind of command where that every son that is born of the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. Uh, but you let the daughters live. And so chapter 2 picks up on this story in the middle of that context. And he says this, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him for, a bas- took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her uh, young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then, her, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. When we read this story, it's a, a birth story, maybe a little different than most birth stories, but we read this, and what would, should we take from this? And I'd offer you this. God's providence deepens our faith. The idea is God's providence, the fact that He's at work in human history, deepens our faith. That the fact that God is at work in the events and the circumstances surrounding someone's life, His people's life, actually should deepen our faith because we realize that He has a plan. We realize that He has a purpose, that it actually gives meaning and purpose to all of our life when we realize that He is active in it, that He is orchestrating the events for His ends, for His plan to be accomplished. That God's providence deepens our faith. That through knowing that God is active and He's working, we see a greatness of God that we otherwise might not have seen. That we see His love and care for His people and how He orchestrates these events. That God's providence deepens our faith. And when we read Exodus chapter 2, we see that this truly is a story of faith. Exodus chapter 2 focuses on the mother, that the, the mother of this child, Moses, uh, she saw this child and she decided she was going to not go through with the Pharaoh's edict, his command to cast this boy into the Nile, but rather she was going to defy it and keep him safe when she saw him and saw that he was a, a child, that she should take care of him. And this truly is a story of faith as this, this, this lady stood up against Pharaoh. And it's, you know, Exodus chapter 2 focuses on the, um, Moses' mother, but really both mother and father were both faithful in this because they were working together to save this child. 
And if we doubted that this was by faith, all we have to do is read in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, this kind of dialogue of faith, these heroes of faith, and it says this in Hebrews chapter 11, 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because, saw, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so you got this example of Moses' parents actually fearing God, knowing what was good, knowing what was right, and so they were not afraid to defy Pharaoh and save their child. And so they were, did that out of faith. But as I said, Exodus chapter 2 focuses on his mom and how she did this out of faith. You know, it's interesting, we don't know Moses' mother's name from Exodus chapter 2. We have to wait until we get to his genealogy in Exodus chapter 6 to find out her name, which was Jacobed. Maybe that's why they didn't include in Exodus 2, because her name was Jacobed. But, that's a joke, people. It's a funny name. All right. But Moses' mother acted from faith as she saw her child and said, no, I'm going to save him. And I actually think it's probably not recorded her name because she was an ordinary woman. There was nothing extraordinary about his mother. She was just from another people of, of, of the Levites. She was part of, a clan, of one of the clans of Israel, but yet she chose to act in faith. And so you might say the only thing extraordinary about her was her faith, choosing to defy Pharaoh. And so she did. But you know, raising a child always is an act of faith. Because you try your best, you do what you, 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 you're called to do, but in the end you know it's not in your hand. But just put yourself in Jacobed's shoes, if you will. Imagine the fear. Pharaoh had decreed all these boys die, and yet she held her baby. She hid him away for three months. She hushed him maybe when she heard people walking outside the door. She was afraid maybe someone was going to turn her in, report her to Pharaoh, and that her child would be ripped from her arms. And she had to cuddle this child as this child would scream or make be fussy as all kids are. And every moment she lived by faith, trusting that what she was doing was worth it, what she was doing was good, as she held her child and said, hush, fearing what would happen next. And she held on as long as she could. For three months, she held her child and kept him secret until it got desperate. Probably because he was getting bigger, he was getting more louder. He was getting rambunctious. And so she couldn't maybe hide him anymore. And so desperate times call for desperate measures. And so she had to do something. And in the weird kind of in-your-face act of creative disobedience to Pharaoh, she said, fine, if he has to go in the Nile, he'll go in the Nile, but he'll go in a basket. And she fashioned an ark. She fashioned a small little basket, put pitch under it, you know, made it waterproof, and put him in the reeds, trusting again in God in the midst of that. One commentator said this about her actions. She says, having received, having received her son as a gift from the Lord, she turned him back over to the Lord in faith. Jacobet could hardly have sent, would have hardly have sent her daughter to, along to watch if she had expected her child to be murdered. 
if, it's, uh, if it seemed like she was abandoning him, is only into God's loving care as every faithful parent must. Because every parent knows this, that at some point you, you basically have to turn your kids over to God's hand, to God's control, that you, you know you can't control and protect them forever. Jacob just had to do it a whole lot earlier than most of us. But she trusted God. She had faith in this. She let go knowing that God would be faithful and be at work. This is a story of faith. Imagine, as we see the story play out, how Jacobeb's faith would have deepened. As she trusted God when she placed Moses in the basket, and she receives him back from Pharaoh's daughter. Imagine how her faith would have deepened and you say, yes, God is truly at work in this. God's providence deepens our faith. As I said, this is a story of faith, but it also is a story of providence. Providence is that this idea that God is at work in human history, or to use John Piper's uh, definition, he says, it's the act of God purposely providing for and sustaining and governing the world. The, act, the idea that God actually is involved in the world. We don't believe in the clockwork theist God that kind of winds up the world and says, hey, good luck. No, we believe in a God that loves us and cares for us so much that he's active in this world. He cares about what happens. He actually is behind everything that happens. That God sees all, knows all, and is orchestrating everything for his purposes. This is our great and mighty God, and that is what providence means, is that he never lets go. He never turns his back. He never turns a blind eye for what's happening. He is involved. John Piper uses the analogy that when we look at the word providence, it's made up of these two kind of Latin roots. The, the pro, which means uh, uh, to or towards, and then vidi, which means see. And so it's, it's almost this idea that you, you see to it. That we have this idiom in the English language that when we can tell someone, hey, I'll see to it, meaning I'll take care of it, meaning I'll ensure it happens. And just in that wording, you can see that's what God's providence means, is that when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it, that he sees to it that his plan happens. He sees to it that what he says is going to happen takes place. We know that happening as we read this story because we see divine fingerprints over the story in almost every aspect. We see God at work. Another commentator just said it like this. He summed it up really well. He said, Moses is spared being cast out of the ver- cast, uh, is, is spared being cast onto the very Nile that was to drown him. It's treated with material, uh, maternal kindness by the daughter of the very king who had con- condemned him and whose descendants would he become a nemesis to. He's assigned as a responsibility with pay to the one woman in all the world who most wanted the best for him, his own mother. Just think about that story and how it works out, and we see God's fingerprints all through it. We see providence taking place. Just think through it. That Moses' mother and how she planned and how she made this, this, this ark, actually pointing back to how humanity was saved from the flood. It's the only other time that word, that Hebrew word, is actually used in the Old Testament. This ark that she makes from Moses to save him, and it actually works. How absurd is it to think that you can put a baby in the rushes of the Nile and someone's going to take care of him? But God's providence is at work. That even in this desperate act 
God was at work. You can imagine her saying, man, I fell. I tried to stay true. I knew I shouldn't kill my kid. I knew I shouldn't cast him in the Nile, but I cannot hide him any longer. And she, you can imagine she almost thinks that she's a failure as a mother as she places Moses in that basket in the river and says, God, I trust you. But even in her desperate act, even in her sense of being a failure, God was at work to save Moses and through saving Moses, save his people. So we can see God's fingerprints there. God's fingerprints were on the fact that Pharaoh's daughter showed up at the right time, at the right location to find Moses. It wasn't happen to chance. It wasn't just something that happened. No, God was working in these, and so she looks upon him. She obviously sees that he is a Hebrew. Why does she know that he's a Hebrew child? Why? Well, maybe because he was in the Nile. <laughs> maybe because of the simple fact that he's circumcised. But she sees that he is in Nile, and she took pity on him. She chose to defy her father's decree. and said, I'm going to choose to let this baby live. Not only that, I'm going to take him into my household. He will be mine. We see God's fingerprints through that. We see God's fingerprints in the fact that Miriam, Moses' sister, was there as well. And she was spying upon what was happening. She's keeping watch. And then she's bold enough to actually go to Pharaoh's daughter and suggest that she hire a nurse, that she can go find one for her. We see God's fingerprints in this as Pharaoh's daughter says, go, do that. We see God's fingerprints in the fact that Moses' mother was to raise him. That the very woman, as a commentator said, that cares the most about him now gets paid to raise her own kid. This is God's providence. We see God's providence in the fact of Moses' upbringing. Being a Hebrew, being of his people, but now being raised by his mother's breast as people, but now when he's of age, he goes to live with Pharaoh and he's trained in Pharaoh's ways. He's trained in the Egyptians' ways. And we see how Stephen talks about this in Acts 7, uh, verse 22, when he says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And this idea that uh, Moses went and was instructed by Egyptians, and that now who would be the better stand between? The better, the mediator between the Hebrew people and Pharaoh than the one that was raised in Pharaoh's house but yet is Hebrew from birth. And in his upbringing, we see that God was making through all these things the perfect Savior for his people at this time. That he would be that person who stands between his people and Pharaoh. And all these things, this is not happenstance, this is not luck, this is not just how things just play out. This points to the fact that God is at work. It's God's providence as he's bringing about, orchestrating his plan to save his people. And the very fact that we see this should deepen our faith. As we look upon this historical instance when Moses is brought to be where he is to save his people, we trust that God, that the only God actually worth knowing, worth worshiping, is the God who has a power to actually be active in human events. That's the only God worth knowing. If we believe in a God who cannot act within human events, why would we offer him praise? 
Why would we pray to him? Why would we sing to him? Why? He has no power if he cannot work in human events. But when we see, read the Bible, what do we see again and again? A God who has the power and is behind human events, is in human events, is right there alongside us, working all things for the good of his people. And that is why he's worthy of praise. Because he's that powerful. That he can take things that are meant for evil and turn them for good in our lives. That he orchestrates all these things so that we can grow, we can be his, we can be saved. And so the only God worth knowing and worshiping is the one who works in human events to accomplish salvation, to ensure his plan is accomplished. That we need a God like this. I need a God like this. I need a God who's active in my own home, working in the things that are going on. I need a God who stays with me when I go to work. I need a God who's with me in all these circumstances I experience on a daily basis, knowing that he is greater than them all, and he's working in them all to bring about his plan. God's providence deepens our faith as we realize this is our great God. This is a story of faith, this is a story of providence, and it's also a story of a Savior. That Moses was a Savior as he's going to bring his people out of Egypt. And when you read this story, this Savior points to the Savior that we need and know who is Jesus Christ. You know, I mentioned before how the Bible is filled with these birth narratives, these birth stories, right? And we can think, hey, why is the Bible filled with so many people giving birth? And I would argue that it's because of a thing called maybe typology, which is a fancy, fancy way of saying there's these repeated patterns that we see out throughout Scripture that escalate, that get bigger, that get grander. And so we see promises made that get bigger and bigger as they go on throughout Scripture. And so we can trace back why are there so many birth narratives and why would we care about the birth of the Savior? Well, because when we read the Bible, when we go back to Genesis 3.15, we see a promise. That in the midst of the fall of humanity, when God speaks to the serpent, he actually makes a promise. He makes a promise that there will be, born of the woman, an offspring who's going to conquer the serpent. And that is a promise that there will be a child. And you can imagine that Adam and Eve hear this promise, and then when they have Cain and Abel, they think, maybe one of these is it. They're going to put the world right. And then, of course, Cain kills Abel, and they go, oh, not yet. But you can see that again and again through the Bible, that there's this promise there of a child. And so they got, kind of got, it gets bigger. And so when Abraham is chosen and called out of Yor, and he, and he makes a covenant with God, or God makes a covenant with him, and what does he promise? Look at the stars, and you see all the stars. You're going to have descendants of numbering more than these stars. And Abraham's like, how is this possible? I'm old, my wife's old, we don't even have kids. And again, the promise is there, you'll have a son through whom this is going on. And so Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. 
Again, again, you see why are these birth narratives again spoken out? Because people are hoping and expecting for this promise to be fulfilled. And Esau and Jacob, the promise where they were expecting it to be fulfilled, hopefully be fulfilled, it escalates, it gets bigger, it's bigger. And so even you have an angel appearing to, to uh, Samson's mother and promising that he's going to be a judge who's going to save Israel. You have these promises getting bigger and bigger until we get the biggest birth narratives and biggest promise ever, which is Jesus Christ. Being born for us. So it escalates, it gets bigger and bigger. And so now Moses becomes a type of Christ that points forward to who Christ was going to be. And it's no mistake now when you look at Moses' birth and his early life, how closely it mirrors Jesus' life. Because he's pointing to the Savior. He's preparing the way. He's actually preparing God's people to receive Christ in the future. Again, if you just look at their names, it's, you know, the small little fact that the Pharaoh's daughter at least knew some Hebrew because she makes a pun of his name. She names him Moses because it sounds like the Moses word for draw out, but actually it sounds closer to the Hebrew word for I will draw out, kind of hinting at what Moses is going to do as he's going to draw out his people from Egypt. How similar is that to Jesus as he is given a name that means God saves, pointing to his future mission. Both Moses and Jesus were born under a death sentence and how their parents acted in faith to save them. Moses was born under this death sentence to be thrown in the Nile. Jesus was born under a death sentence as Herod hears about this king being born and so he kills all the kids two years and younger in the region where Jesus is supposed to be. They were both born under that death sense. They both found safety in, he, in Egypt. Moses found safety in the bosom of Pharaoh's daughter. How much more Egyptian can you get? And then where does Jesus' family flee when they're under a death sense? To Egypt to be safe. Again and again, you see these things align, preparing people to receive who Jesus is as he is the Savior. And finally, ultimately, they both stand between their people, and someone higher. Moses stands between, he's being prepared, he was born to stand between the Hebrew people and Pharaoh to save them, to speak on their behalf. And Jesus stands between his people, us, and God, to intercede and save us. Again and again, you see this is a story of a Savior, a Savior that points to the Savior. That when you read this story, it should fill us with hope, it should fill us with expectation, it should fill and deepen our faith as we realize how if God is at work in Moses' life, and if God is at work in Jesus' life to bring about that Savior, the ultimate Savior, how much more will he be and work in our lives as he's bringing about salvation that he has promised? So this deepens our faith as we see this pointing to the ultimate Savior. God's providence deepens our faith. This is a story of faith, a story of providence, a story of Savior, and fundamentally, it is our story. It is our story because this is the heritage of faith. This is God's family being protected and increased and saved, which we through Jesus Christ, are engrafted into that family, and so this is our spiritual heritage. But also, 
is our story because just like Moses' mother and father were people of faith, so we are called to be people of faith. But do we truly believe what this and the rest of the Bible point to? Do we truly believe in this God who loves us, why we are still sinners, to send His Son to die for us? Do we truly believe in a God who is so powerful that He is behind human events, that no matter what you're going through, He has not forgotten you, He has not turned His back on you, He's working in that? Do we truly believe and have faith that where we are is where God has placed us, and where we are is where God wants us, that He's working through us? Do we truly believe in a God that powerful? If we do, we we are following in a long line of people of faith who trust him and look towards him no matter what. If we have that faith, we look to Christ and we know that God is working all these things for our good. And our good might not be what we want. It might not be what makes us comfortable, but it's our good as it brings us closer and closer to him. It's for our good as we're conformed to the image of his son. It's for our good as we are sanctified and become more and more his people as he's called us to be. And so we can look at that and do we have that kind of faith? Are we that kind of people of faith? If we are, this is our story as we look to God and trust in Him. And if you don't, if you don't, or aren't there yet, or if you're maybe on the fence of who this Jesus person is or, or why this is important, then I just urge you to look again. To look upon Jesus and know Him. If you're not settled in who He is and how God works in our lives, look to Jesus. And see his beauty, see his care, see his love, see how he saves us. And you too can have that same faith as God is at work in you. This is our story as we look upon our God with faith as we trust him. This is our story because it defines us as a people as we look not just to how God worked in Moses' life, but we look to the Savior, Jesus Christ and how he's at work in our lives. That he saves us. That he saved his people back here in Exodus, and he saves us through Jesus Christ, and he's working presently, right now, to bring us to completion in him. That nothing can make him let go. That nothing can make him not love you. That the gloriousness of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is, that there's nothing you can do that can make God love you less, and there's nothing you can do or not do that can make God love you more. Because He loves you completely and wholly, because He has said it so, and we trust and have faith in this God who speaks and then acts. And He's bringing us to completion in Him. So this is our story as we trust in Him. Story as it defines us as a people of faith that God's providence deepens our faith. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank You so much for Your Word. That we can read it, we can know it, we can grow in understanding of it and see You and how You work in it. See You and know how You have saved us that we can read the, the Old Testament stories and see how you're working throughout history and pointing towards the Savior Jesus Christ and how it builds and it increases and increases our understanding and increases our understanding of you and how you work in time and history. Lord, I just pray that you continue to work in our, us. That you, you give us a faith to know you. 
a faith to respond to you, a faith to follow you. That we can people people of faith to look to you and follow you over the world, the ways of society. That we know your truth and stand in it. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you could stand again, please.